Greetings, one and all. Welcome to another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. I'm glad you could join us again. We've got a really good one for today, um, a really good June podcast. Uh, it was 80 years ago this very June that the perils of World War II had reached just within a few hundred yards off the American coast. Um, beachgoers in the Mid-Atlantic were enjoying a nice sunny day, that mid-June day, and all of a sudden ships started blowing up right in their faces right at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and here to talk with us about this is author Ed Offley, um, who did our great cover story a couple of issues ago on Operation Drumbeat. This is sort of a follow-up piece. It looks at how um, Hitler's U-boat war um, started to take a dangerous new shift at this point in the war in 1942, in June. And the results of that were uh, quite a shocking thing and a, re um, a reminder to those of us today in this, what seems like these tempestuous times, this ball of confusion that is June 2022, that in June 1942, our grandparents and great-grandparents were facing a lot of uh, things that uh, we wouldn't even dream of, like Hitler's U-boats right within sight in front of them blowing up ships. And so here to tell us this amazing story about the U-701, and her saga off the U.S. coast is Ed Offley to discuss his article in the current issue, When War Erupted Off Virginia Beach. Ed, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to see you again. Good morning, Eric. Glad to be here. Ed has written some wonderful books about the U-Boat War. He's one of our um, best current authors on the topic. Uh, the Burning Shore, Turning the Tide, Scorpion Down. Um, so we look forward to seeing more from him, but we're thrilled to have him in our pages again. Um, this is a really unique story, and I feel like if people were in Virginia Beach right now, this very day, sitting on the beach, hearing this story, it would be hard for them to imagine this surreal, surreal image of just right in front of them, these ships blowing up, creating such a tidal surge that it's like uh, blowing the uh, beachgoers back out of the water. So I invite you to tell our viewers this remarkable tale. Well, it's it's uh it's amazing in that it was a lost tale when I first started researching this 40 years ago, halfway. Um, I was uh, working at the newspaper in Norfolk, the Ledger Star, and a couple of old timers kept saying, you know, there was this really weird thing that happened back in 42, where all these ships got sunk right in front of all the tourists on Virginia Beach. And I went back, and wartime censorship in World War II, we have no idea how strict it could be. Um, you couldn't even broadcast the weather report without clearing it with the censors. But what happened was so blatant and so upfront and seen by 50,000 people that the censors allowed one day of coverage. There was one big banner headline day. And like most newspaper articles, there's the first rough draft of history. They got it all wrong. Uh, it's another story. But essentially what happened was uh, there had been a six-month campaign from the short Newfoundland to the Caribbean, where the German U-boat force, uh, emboldened by our entry into the war and yet the U.S. Navy's total lack of preparedness in defending, uh, they came west, they came inshore, and from January to, to July, early July, uh, both along the East Coast and in the Caribbean and Gulf of Mexico, sank over 500 merchant ships, lost uh, thousands of uh, merchant marine uh, sailors who were just as valuable as the ships because they were rare 
and uh, wreaked havoc. And one of the reasons the sudden inshore attack that happened in, on June uh, 15th, 1942, I mean, nobody knew it at the time, but essentially it was the ending of that chapter. Um, the U.S. had practically no effective defense against the U-boats when Operation Drumbeat broke out in January of 42. Um, the destroyer group uh, forces were stretched thin. Uh, even those that were there were ill-trained in anti-submarine warfare, which is a very complicated and technical, uh, tactical uh, situation. Uh, the Army Air Force bombers uh, spent most of January and February uh, dropping bombs on American uh, escort ships they would see in the Gulf or in the water because they thought they were all German U-boats. So it was a bit of a uh, one-legged ass-kicking contest for a long time. Over the six-month period, uh, in my opinion, the, the Americans did what Winston Churchill has famously said. Uh, he once said, you, you could trust the Americans to do the right thing after they tried everything else. Uh, there was a very steep learning curve. Uh, it was paid for in the blood of merchant marine uh, crewmen and ships. But finally, by, uh, by June of 42, they had actually uh, created what they called the interlocking coastal convoy system. Now, a convoy seems like a very simple, simple situation. You put a group of ships together going in a certain direction, surround them with escorts. It forces a solitary or even a group of German U-boats to come to you to do the attack. And there, if you got a well-defended uh, convoy screen, the advantage is, is, is in your favor. For the first six months of 1942, these poor merchant ships were, say, getting oil in, in, uh, in the Caribbean down in Trinidad or Tobago or, or Venezuela. They came up across the Caribbean, around the Straits of Florida, up the East Coast, and the whole time u boats were there waiting for them, so picked them off. And what happened in June of 1942, uh, Admiral Carl Doinitz was the commander-in-chief of the U-boat force. Uh, his, you know, statistics and his, the reports of his captain showed him that uh, the pickings were getting pretty thin along the East Coast. So he decided to do one last sort of a, a slap of the wet towel in the face of the Americans. And he had two operations that went in on June 13th, 14th, and 42. It was the night of the new moon, total darkness along the coast. He sent U-boats to the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, the Delaware Bay, and... Uh, Boston approaches Massachusetts Bay, while two other U-boats were coming ashore at the tip of Long Island and south of St. Augustine, Florida, to land eight German saboteurs who were going to go around blowing up railroad bridges and things like that. Uh, it was a mixed result. Uh, the U-boat that laid mines in the Delaware Bay apparently missed the channel, and the only things they ever sank was a tugboat and a couple of barges. Uh, the fellow who tried to, to close the uh, port of Boston, uh, his mines, uh, I don't even think they ever found them. He just dropped them somewhere and they're still there, all rusted out. But the German U-boat who was assigned to come in shore at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay uh, scored a spectacular success. Uh, this was a guy named Horst Degen, 27 years old. It was his third war patrol. Uh, so far he had a... I'd say an adequate, but not a spectacular war record, mainly because of the situations he was in in the previous cruises. 
uh, first when he was bedeviled by uh, fierce stormy weather, which made it impossible to carry out any attacks against shipping. And in the second one, Hitler, uh, in one of his fantasies in April of 42, uh, he suddenly decided that Norway is about to be invaded by Britain. I, you know, he pulled that out of his ears or whatever. Uh, and he ordered about a third of the U-boats in the Atlantic to go up and form a barrier between Iceland and Scandinavia. And so, of course, Dagenham and about a dozen other U-boats spent a month out there just freezing to death. You know, he caught a couple of, of small escort ships and sank them. But for for this uh, mission, it was it was it was pretty dicey. Um, uh, German U-boats, like every submarine, their their only um, strength is in their ability to hide. And he was being sent inshore to water that was so shallow, he estimated that if he submerged on the bottom, uh, the top of this conning tower would just be two feet below the surface. So anybody rowing by a rowboat would say, hey, there's a, there's a German U-boat. But he, he, being a good uh, German naval officer, he carried out orders. They loaded 15 of these uh, mines in his torpedo tubes. Uh, they were a third as long as a torpedo, but they had twice the explosive warhead because they didn't need a motor or propeller or any of that stuff. So he had 15 of these things. He comes across the Atlantic, uh, essentially tiptoeing across on one engine to save fuel. Uh, gets close to the Virginia Beach on the evening of uh, June 13th. Um, and he and his, uh, his navigator work it out. Uh, instead of carrying out Doinitz's orders, which are pretty silly, uh, Doinitz wanted the U-boat to go right into the Chesapeake Bay, submerge to the bottom, and hang around for a day or two, checking out how the ships were going. Uh, he saw that as a one-way trip to a POW camp, so they decided just to do it their own way. And so what they did was they headed for the Virginia Beach oceanfront, just straight in, you know, if he, if he kept going, he was going to go right up on the beach. And about 200 yards out, his navigator looked up to the north, and you saw the two lighthouses of Cape Henry and Cape Charles. And he had figured on a chart when the two of them lined up in a, in a, in a you know, single dot of light, that meant he was aimed right at the entrance of the Chesapeake Bay. So he executed a right-hand turn. He's on the surface, chugged along, got to the point where it's time to drop off the torpedoes, and this little patrol boat suddenly appears out of nowhere going back and forth across the channel. So instead of, you know, hiding or submerging, he just turned off his loud diesel motors, turned on his electric motors that they use when they're running submerged, and kept going. He just kind of tiptoed around this little patrol boat, dropped 15 mines uh, across the channel, and they all had timers set for 48 hours to give him plenty of uh, opportunity to get out of there. One interesting footnote is, I first wrote this uh, story in 1982. Uh, I had found Horst Degen, who survived the war, We'd exchanged extensive letters, and he had actually sent me a wonderful English-language essay he'd written about his experience. So the Ledger Star newspaper printed this report series about how U-701 tipped it around that old patrol boat, dropped the mines, and then safely got back out to sea. Well, the next day, I was sitting at my desk in Norfolk, and my phone rang. And this elderly gentleman came on the line. He started berating me viciously. You stupid reporter, you don't know anything. You got all wrong. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down, sir. Tell, tell, tell me my mistake. He said, well, I was in that patrol boat, and I didn't see a thing. <laughs> That's just the point.
Oh, yeah. Ryan, right. the patrol boat skipper read your article in the 1980s. <laughs> he, he was he was right, Father. Uh, the, the other positive feedback is I got a, a note from the chairman of my uh, communications company, Landmark, which owned the. And he, um, he thank you for answering a mystery I've always wondered about. It turns out he was a 15 year old boy swimming in the water when the the first ship mine went off, and he said he could feel the shock waves hitting him in the body from from the ship that was blown up 200 yards away from him. So it's a small world. That's just amazing, yeah. Um, and you, you point this out in the piece as the um, as the beachgoers, like the uh, fellow you talked to, were there that day. Suddenly, these um, ships are exploding right before their very eyes. Their first thought is U-boat, correct, but they're also thinking torpedoes. But um, this was like a whole new approach, the uh, mine laying thing. And if it had really panned out better, if they'd planned it more, this could have really been disastrous. If they'd really gotten every major port of the East Coast uh, with the mines, um, there was a lot of potential there that was shown at the mouth of the Chesapeake that day. And um, I feel like they could have done a lot more with that if they'd had the will to do it. Well, you know, people in 1942 probably didn't know about it because of censorship and people in 2022 probably don't know about it because it's ancient history but uh, the Germans actually did a very ambitious uh, mining campaign uh, against the British uh, British Isles right at the outset of the war and they used airplanes surface ships some u-boats and and they sank I think a good three or four dozen ships at about all those seaports around Scotland and England so it does work if you do it do it correctly um, but this was essentially, I think, one last slap in the face before he redeployed his U-boat force back out to the what they call the North Atlantic Convoy routes, which is like from Halifax up towards Newfoundland, up towards Iceland, and then over towards uh, the northern approaches to the United Kingdom. That was the main target area for most of the war, because that's where all the merchant ships taking supplies uh, to England were going, was along that northern route. So this was a, a phased chapter in, in the conflict. And it was a pretty vicious one. I was always surprised at how, how little people knew about this. And then I, then I learned, just as I said, about how effective the censorship was in World War II. Uh, the Navy uh, was not at its best. I mean, they, they, as I say, they finally learned how to do it right and, and did drive the U-boats back out to sea. But there was a high price to pay. And, and the, the reason... Um, the reason we knew very little about it for years and years is that um, genuine military secrets as well as genuine military screw-ups all came under the same censorship cloak. Right. You know, it's important, I think, for everybody to be reminded of this chapter of uh, World War II frequently. Uh, when we think of the war at sea in that war where Americans, their minds go to the Pacific, We our last... Uh, our last podcast episode was about the Battle of Midway it's having its 80th anniversary this month. And, you know, obviously that's uh, that's where the American memory goes to. But this should be more well remembered because really this is the closest World War II came to us geographically, isn't it? I mean, they're just pretty right much yeah, pretty yeah. much. There was one delicious episode out in California. I'm sure you know about um, this German submarine. Our, our Japanese submarine, R-19, uh, had a big, powerful deck gun. He comes up into the Santa Barbara Channel and starts shooting uh, at this oil 
refinery uh, kind of up by Santa Barbara, California. And it's real choppy water and, you know, his gunners aren't that good. And I don't think a single shell actually hit the, the oil tank farm. Uh, most of them splashed into the water or thumped into the side of the cliff. But as, as, as I found out later, this, this had, had a connection to my story about U-701 because it caused such a panic in L.A. that, you know, you could, they had headlines in newspapers you could read 100 yards away without even having to buy it. Uh, I thought it was the end of the world. You know, and after Pearl Harbor, I guess nerves were kind of frayed. But two days later, this uh, Army patrol plane uh, came flying down from Sacramento to, to Riverside on a long distance navigation uh, exercise. And the Army unit back in Sacramento forgot to tell Southern California that this plane was coming down there. And this is like a day or two after the, uh, the Japanese uh, submarine had shelled the refinery. So suddenly they had an unidentified airplane coming in from the sea on radar. Well, he, he managed to land safely without being shot down. But about eight hours later, every anti-aircraft gun from San Diego to Central California was on combat alert. Nerves were frayed. One guy fired off a shell and everybody fired. It was like, it was like the feel of Camelon. This, the sky is full of rounds and tracers and bullets. And unfortunately, you know, as, as, as the old song goes, what, what goes up must come down. And so these gunners just shelled the, the living devil out of Southern California. A couple of people died. Um, they ended up calling it the Battle of Los Angeles. Well, the poor, the poor Army fire who inadvertently set this off uh, later came east, was assigned to a base down, uh, which is now uh, uh, Cherry Point Marine Corps Air Station. And he was, uh, it was him and his air crew that three weeks after U-701 successfully mined the Chesapeake Bay, uh, this air crew was on patrol off Cape Hatteras, uh, surprised the U-boat on the surface and, and sank it. Uh, it was the first time an Army aircraft uh, had successfully sunk a German U-boat. U-701 was? Uh, the A-29 uh, the Lockheed uh, uh, aircraft sank U-701, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the price that U-701 paid for its successful mining of the mouth of the Chesapeake. They didn't uh, live to tell the tale much longer after, did they? How many days later was that when they, they were sunk by the uh, aircraft? Oh, they were sunk on July 7th. And there's a, a very tragic sea story that devolved from that. Um, when the plane hit U-701 with a depth charge, it was at the very stern of the U-boat. Um, they, they did a crash dive, but it was only 100 feet of water. So they came to the bottom, but they were flooding. Uh, German submariners were very well trained in escape and safety. And all but a handful did get out of the U-boat and successfully made it up to the surface, uh, including uh, uh, Commander Degen. Um, most of them had little life float flotation gear, but not all. Um, once uh, Lieutenant Tr uh, Kane and his air crew saw that they had sunk the U-boat and they saw these people popping to the surface, as Lieutenant Kane said in a memoir, he said, I suddenly realized these weren't the enemy, enemy anymore. There were some helpless men in the water. So instead of just flying away, he circled at low altitude and he ordered his crewmen to throw out the big life raft that the plane had, plus their own flotation uh, life jackets. 
and they threw them down to the to the poor Germans in the water. Um, they tried unsuccessfully to get ships or airplanes to come out and, and help rescue these guys. There was radio static or problems of communication. Finally, they had to fly back. They were running out of gas. So they flew back to North Carolina, and to his fury, uh, Kane found that nobody believed him when he reported to Sakayuba. They just said, oh, you're making it up. You couldn't have done that. Well, anyway, they belatedly got a search underway for these guys, but they didn't count on the Gulf Stream. And it took two days to find them. And when, when they finally came upon the survivors, there were only seven of these guys left. The rest had all drowned. Um, they were retrieved by a, a Navy, uh, uh, what do you call it, seaplane, and off to captivity for the rest of the war. You know, you hear those kind of aftermath stories, and it gives you hope for humanity. Um, they're the enemy until they're in need of your help, and then they're just somebody that is a person in need. And uh, I know it was that way with kamikaze pilots. We would uh, pull them out of the water, and they were incredulous, like, why are you doing this? <laughs> but um, Well, we have a question uh, that's come by a viewer, um, so let's get that on here. Okay, well. Okay, here's one. There's a sort of an applied history question to throw at you here, Ed. Uh, what are the lessons from this conflict for the Black Sea and South China Sea? That sounds like a broad brush question about <laughs> wars in general, but um, maybe there's if there's a subcomponent to that question you can think of. It's well, I would say that um, submarines are more important than ever. I would say that. If China invades Taiwan, I don't think it's going to help the foreign trade situation. So I don't think there's going to be too much of a need for convoys. I might be wrong on that. But essentially, the, the root lesson is um, the United States Navy in the year or two before Pearl Harbor was just a tiny shadow of what it would become to be. But it takes time, effort, money, and sweat to forge an effective, combat-capable Navy out of a peacetime group of, of you know, happy-go-lucky sailors. It took six months of really grueling work before the U.S. Navy, the Atlantic Fleet, learned how to attack, sink, and essentially thwart U-boat attacks. And it was, it was by the skin of their fingernails the whole time because every other theater in the war was competing for resources. Uh, just one quick uh, example. Uh, one of the vital tools in the ultimate defeat of the U-boat was called the VLR Liberator. This is a B-24 land-based four-engine bomber that was converted for extra long-range patrols by essentially adding fuel tanks to where one of their bomb bays was. And it gave it the range to fly way out in the Atlantic, linger, and then come back. Until that plane was available in strength to the Allies, particularly the, uh, the Royal Air Force, the Germans had this huge area of the Atlantic that they called the uh, Mid-Atlantic Gap, uh, where the ships that were out there were under no protection, or no airplanes could get to them to, to safeguard them, and it was easy pickets. It took two and a half years, I think, for the RAF finally to get enough of these planes, I think we're talking maybe a dozen or two, to go out and, and close that uh, air gap. 
When they did that, the defeat of the U-boats was preordained, but it took them mostly struggling against their, their colleagues in the Royal Air Force who wanted to use those planes to bomb Berlin or in the American Army Air Forces who wanted to use those planes, uh, you know, in their bombing campaigns. And nobody wanted to take this scarce amount of planes and give them to the people who needed it the most. So the general lesson I would say is, I don't care how many ships or airplanes or submarines you've got in the Western Pacific or capable of patrolling out there, but unless they know what they're doing, you know, it's going to be like uh, early 42, you're going to have a bloodbath, and not a very good one. Yeah, maybe that's the um, most sobering takeaway, right? Uh, the, the, the great sort of narrative arc of the Navy in World War II is how they had a learning curve and they had to pick things up and uh, mix, fix their mistakes and ride the occasion in a hurry, and that they did. It's one of the most heroic aspects of it is how they improved on on the fly in the thick of it. You know, they had to like get better and they did. But you have to wonder in uh, the current um, battle space, is there gonna be that kind of time for a learning curve? I mean, we turn it around relatively, relatively quickly by like say Pacific War standards in the 40s, um, where, you know, you can look back a year and we've got it together so much more than we had a year earlier. But if things got hot, today is there going to be that kind of learning curve you've got cyber you've got all sorts of things that are much more real time everything's more real time now so that's well, kind of I, I would be a little more positive because the environment out there in the taiwan straits area and the in the south china sea uh, you know if you if you if you read your daily us and i news feed um our, our our ships and carriers and submarines they're not just hanging around in port on liberty um I remember when the Nimitz came back last year from its extended, they called it the COVID deployment, um, coming and going uh, to the Middle East. They stopped in the South China Sea with another carrier, I think the Roosevelt the first time and the Reagan the second time, and they put together a two-carrier combat arms uh, formation and went steaming into the, you know, the waters that China says, hey, that belongs to us now. And they were saying, excuse me, no, it doesn't. So I would, I would say I'm a lot more positive about uh, the readiness and the overall uh, technical capabilities because the, the peacetime operations out there now are, are being conducted with a sureness that at any moment it could put, uh, become a conflict. I mean, it's, it's pretty getting pretty dicey uh, out there with China's behavior. Right. Um, China's uh sub-fleet which has been growing um they've got stealth capabilities and um and whatnot uh that are cause for concern and i know that um our folks are staying up late at night analyzing all that sort of thing but let's just hope it's all hypothetical and remains so but i agree with you it seems like with each passing year or month it it, it seems like more dicey as you put it so well i had a, I had a good friend uh, admiral joe pruer who later became u.s ambassador to china uh, he was uh, SyncPAC, uh, which is now Indopac, um, back when I was in Seattle working at the newspaper there. And I remember he gave a speech one night and he said, you got, uh, we don't have to worry about China. Our grandchildren will be working the China problem. Uh, I just noticed something. I think the grandchildren you're talking about are now in their first term enlistments in the U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, and Army. So, you know, Yikes. time to time. Yikes. 
well, let's hope he was off by a generation or so or whatever. But um, yeah, um, as a side note, the Naval Institute um, published uh, Admiral Preer's oral history just very recently, in the last couple of years. So that's out there, folks, if anyone's interested in it. Um, you're right. There's a nice, a lot of good China insight um, that he had to bring from his career, um, his sort of two-track career. Well, um, so you got to know uh, by correspondence Captain Hans Dagen of the uh, skipper of the U-701. What was that like? Uh, can I, I do I have enough time to tell you a really brief anecdote about the miracle of journalism now? Please and, do. And, uh, I had a unique problem. Usually you start to write a, a you know, a nonfiction history of something that happened a long time ago. And the, the single hardest thing is to, to get contemporaneous descriptions, quotes, accounts, you know, the narrative of a story. Well, I had a, a completely different situation. In 1982, I'd interviewed both Lieutenant Kane, the guy who sank you 701, and Horst Degen, the commander, at, at length. And had this story of this momentous, you know, three-week period in June of 42. Well, uh, come 2011, <clears throat> excuse me, my book editor said, you know, we could maybe make a book out of, of what happened back then. Uh, being focused as a journalist, I, I didn't go and ask the biographical, uh, where were you as a kid? You know, where'd you go to school? What was your mom like? Filler questions that give you the full three-dimensional portrait of a character in a book. And these guys, uh, alas, had long since passed away. So... I was, you know, wrecking my brains over how am I going to fill the, the book? All I got is a 30-inch newspaper article. Well, I, I knew a guy, I know a guy up in uh, Canada uh, who runs a, one of the most marvelous uh, historical archives on U-boats. It's called uboatarchive.net. His name is uh, Jerry Mason. He's a retired U.S. Naval aviator. Lifelong fascination with, uh, with history. And he has this incredible website where he, fight, he actually gets the German trans, uh, language patrol reports each U-boat and translates them into English and posts them online. So I had used him in my previous book and knew him quite well, and I thought maybe he can give me some advice. So I called Jerry up. I said, here's the situation. I, I need to write a book about two guys I knew 40 years ago that are both died. I said, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. Do you have any ideas? And he said, which U-boat is it? And I said, it's the U-boat that mined Chesapeake Bay in 1942. And he goes, oh, U-701. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I found myself looking at my phone going, Jerry, there were 812 German U-boats commissioned in World War II. You cannot have memorized the names of the captains of every one of them. And he goes, no, no, no. Uh, his son, Gunther, is a good friend of mine. Tell you what. I'll send him a text. Maybe I'll give you a call. An hour and a half later, his deceased heroic German U-boats commander's son calls me out of the blue from Dusseldorf. And we started talking. We talked like two hours. And he, and, he, and he went back through his father's files. And what sealed the deal for him was he found some letters I'd written, Horst Duggan, you know, four decades ago. See, he knew I wasn't a crank, or at least not that kind of a crank. Anyway, because of that, and an amazing researcher I had, I was able to actually find material in Horst Degen's personal and, and, you know, his personal life that made this a three-dimensional book instead of, you know, just a rematched article. So 
And well, oh, by the way, the other thing I found out is that everything is in the National Archives. I, I had a wonderful researcher. When, when Horstegen was taken POW, he was locked away in uh, Arizona. And as a matter of policy, Navy Intel would always put U-boat people from different U-boats together. And then they wiretapped their little rooms. And they had guys with earphones taking dictation 24-7. And so over the course of his four years as a POW, I, I, he talked to these guys about his early life, what they did, how they did it. And all these transcripts are in the National Archives. Even Gunther Degen, horse son, didn't know about this. And my researcher found them. I had conversations from when he was a cadet. That's so great. Life, life, life is good. Well, you're, you're describing the hunting and gathering phase of uh, historical research, which is really where the fun, that's the most fun part, isn't it? The thrill of discovery. Okay. When you find but, um, yeah, I, I just want to add to your shout out for uboatarchive.net. Anyone out there interested, that is just like a lodestone of primary source info on U-boats, uh, World War II. Um, it's just a phenomenal resource. And um, yes, it's definitely something that anybody interested in this should check out. Um, well, um, so what was Dagan like when you, you, you did, you talked to him in the 80s, he would have been what, in his 60s then or something like that? Or Yeah, it's too far, too far, too far, too far. Yeah, he was in his upper 60s. Um, he got out of uh, POW camp. He didn't get home to Germany until 1946. There was, there were, I think at the time, over 20,000 German POWs, a uh, small number of which were U-boat people. Uh, so it took a while to process. He got back to his hometown in uh, outside of Hamburg. He met a widow whose husband had been killed in the Russian uh, front in the German army. And they got married. And uh, he actually, he worked for, I think, 20 years for the Ford Motor Company in one of their distributorships. Uh, he was never what, a Hollywood version of, of, a, of an, a stiff upper lip, heel-quicking Nazi. Uh, the German, German Navy wasn't like that. Hitler used to say he had the Nazi Air Force, the indifferent army, and the Christian Navy. Because the Navy had traditions that predated the Nazis' rise to power. And, and they did their duty, but they weren't too happy with Hitler. Um, he uh, he was a he was a, a very big fan of the United States and England. He just found himself, you know, fighting on the other side. That's amazing. It's amazing to think that um, that recently. Well, I say recently. That sounds not recent to some people who weren't even born then. But um, you could still talk to the World War II guys in the 1980s. You know, they're still around, and uh, it just makes you realize what a loss that is. Is that generation gradually dissipates year by year um yeah i doubt any of them are left now from you know as far as u-boat there might be some out there but um it's just phenomenal that um not that long ago you still have that tangible living link to the this these great events of history early on well um your specialty is this field um i invite you to uh give us a hint of anything you might be working on presently well, actually, I'm taking a long, hot summer off, um, and I'm, I'm working on a kind of a family history that has nothing to do with the military, except my family has been in the military since uh, the Revolutionary War, so I guess it's sort of a uh, more of a, of a historical who did what, when, where. I, uh, I just found out, I did not know this until two years ago, 
my father had a first cousin, but it's a branch of the family that had just fluttered away from ours and they'd lost contact. Uh, and he was killed by a German U-boat. Um, he was an army sergeant in a, in a division coming ashore at Normandy in Christmas Eve of 1944. So this is around the time of the Battle of the Bulge. You know, the, Nor the Normandy invasion was long over. But his troop ship was the, the Leopoldville, which is a certain infamous incident because so many people died. Uh, it was torpedoed in the Bay of the Seine, uh, and I think over five or 600 uh, uh, passengers on board, you know, perished, including himself. I didn't even know he existed. And I found out, he actually, there was an article in the New York Times about him because he was from a, a branch of the family that had become prominent up in Brooklyn, a bunch of Yankees. Anyway, well, here, here you go, Ed. You take a break from U-boat history research to do a family history, and U-boat history comes roaring back in your face again. That's a fascinating thing to coincidentally find out. I guess I'm just doomed. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think are some of the aspects of the U-boat war that we could uh, learn more about? I always like to think about how history is never done, and all the history hasn't been written yet. Um, I know the U-boat. Um, war has got a real sort of aficionado base and um with uboatarchive.net probably being an epitome example of um, that level of granular uh, fact gathering but do you feel like there's any aspects of it that um could bear to be explored more i think they brought out pretty pretty established now but you know what amazes me is they keep coming upon you know incidents or 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 events that were totally, you know, either suppressed by the censors or just overlooked by the people doing the reporting. I'm thinking of the U-boat they found off New Jersey not long ago um, that wasn't supposed to be anywhere near there, the Shadow Divers boat. And then they found the U-boat off of New Orleans that the, the young uh, reservist patrol boat saw and attacked. He had like three depth charges and he actually sank the boat, didn't know he had. Um, reported as a possible kill. And again, shooting the messenger, when he reported this, I wish I had his name at the tip of my tongue, um, he was he was rebuked by his superiors because he was a lowly naval reservist. And actually, they forced him to leave the patrol boat and take some, you know, non-essential shore job. And it wasn't until like five years ago that, I don't know if it was Robert Ballard or another one of these research groups, they actually located the U-boat and confirmed that it had been sunk by a depth charge. And there was a great ceremony, I think, in the CNO's office uh, in the Pentagon, Chief of Naval Operation, where they belatedly presented the guy's family members, his children and grandchildren, with a medal for his his uh, success in sinking a U-boat, for which he was fired from his job. That's fantastic. So, Time favors the... Time favors the uh, person who deserves. And that's another example of how there are a lot of lost stories out there from the U-boat war of World War II. Um, and that reminded me of something I wanted to ask you earlier. The the wreck of U-701, I mean, that's like a major, I mean, it's, you're just north of the graveyard of the Atlantic, so-called there. Um, do we, have, has that wreck been sighted? Has it been dived on? Or yeah. In fact, when I found out... I wrote my article in 1982. Uh, some sport divers found it about six years later, 
And when I found out how they had found it, I could have kicked myself because the evidence that led them to it was right in front of my face the whole time, too. Example, uh, U-701 uh, was patrolling off Cape Hatteras. I think they're a little bit north of it in July of uh, 42. It was brutally hot because U-boats relied on the cold temperature of the ocean water to help keep them habitable. Well, they were patrolling in water that was 75 to 85 degrees. What that meant was the U-boat interior would be over 100, 110 degrees uh, the whole time because of the machinery. Uh, and they were desperate to come up once a day, vent the boat, get fresh air in there, cool it off, and then go back down again until the nighttime when they could surface and go hunt for ships. So anyway, this afternoon in July of 42, he popped up to the surface. He didn't even come fully up. He just broached the surface with his um, conning tower, opened the main hatch, started the diesels, sucking cold air in through the hatchway. Meanwhile, his lookouts are supposed to be looking for, for airplanes, and one of them was daydreaming. And that's how Lieutenant Harry Kane and his air crew got in and, 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 and bombed them. What? One of the things that he remembered was right before that happened, they were on a course of 270, and their lookout had reported seeing a half-sunken merchant ship with two masts poking up out of the water. It was just, you know, in shallow water. And he, for some reason, remembered that. Um, years later, the the guy, I forget his name, Lewis was his name, um, asked Horst Dagen for any information he had on where the U-boat might be. And Dagen sent him that information that they were heading right for a ship that had two masts sticking out of the water. Uh, and then everything, you know, went chaotic. So he, he did his research and he found a shipwreck that looked like the wreck that Degan's lookouts had seen. There, there was two masts and there's, you know, half sunken water. It was north of uh, Cape Hatteras. So they chartered a boat with a little side scanning sonar. They went up to the wreck, did a reciprocal course, went back down the track and found U-701 on the first drive. Wow. So Deegan had the coordinates all along with those two masks poking up. Isn't that I something? mean, I didn't know anything about sonar then, but it, when I read their page, I went, I could have found a U-boat. <laughs> <laughs> do you dive? Do you do wreck dives? No, that's one reason I did not find the U-boat. I do not wreck dive. <laughs> well, I know that's the mecca for wreck divers along that coast there. Um, well, Ed, it's always great to have you on here, and I hope we can have you on here again sometime in the future. Um, our guest has been Ed Offley, author of The Burning Shore and other books on the U-Boat War, and author of When War Erupted Off Virginia Beach in the current June issue of Naval History Magazine. I want to thank you all for joining us again today for the Naval History Podcast, um, and I invite you to become part of the discussion. Uh, we like having questions during the podcast. It's always fun. And um, on the larger scale of becoming part of the discussion and the conversation of all these things we've been talking about, I invite you, if you aren't already, to join the Naval Institute. Um, membership comes with a lot of rewards, including being on the cutting edge of all the um, current debates about uh, the present and future fleet and the geopolitical situation it will face, and looking back on the heritage of our Navy as well 
through Naval History Magazine and other initiatives. It's all there if you join the Naval Institute. And uh, there's the prompt right there. You can see it. So um, please join us again next time. I'm Eric Mills, Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, and we will see you soon, hopefully. Take care.